Welcome to Lamb of God Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. In times like these, we it's hard not to form strong opinions and deep emotions. And last night, I was uh, found myself just uh, very angry, you know, watching the Wendy's burn uh, there in Atlanta. But there's it's a very complex situation. That's a complex um, event that happened Friday night and uh, led to protests yesterday. And they even saw on Twitter where someone was videoing uh, the person who set the Wendy's on fire. And the person who set the Wendy's on fire was not African-American. And so the thing has just gotten to be a swirl of craziness throughout our country. And we want to remember that uh, first and foremost, with uh, I have strong feelings. We all have deep emotions and things, especially with the things with uh, downtown with Woodlawn and that issue with the Board of Education and the church that met there. It's hard, It's easy to have strong emotions, uh, feelings and stuff, but we're reminded that we're, we're, we're agents of reconciliation. Second Corinthians 5 says that we're to work for uh, building relationships and restoring brokenness. And we're agents of reconciliation to bring people together in Christ. And it's no accident that in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, one of the uh, blesseds is blessed are are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom, those who work toward restoration and wholeness. And we saw last week that uh, one of the goals of the church in Romans 15 was that they would uh, live in harmony and speak with one voice and one heart. So no matter your background, economic background, racial background, our goal as believers is to work to our unity. And that's what Jesus was praying for. He prayed that his church would be one as he and the Father were one in John 17. So I know we all, there's nothing wrong with feeling strong emotions. You may have leanings toward, oh, I'm for law and order, or I see the injustice of the situation and I, it needs to be righted. I think you can be, feel strongly about both. But we are working toward not division, uh, but unity in Christ and reconciliation. So I would just encourage you that uh, second, read Second Corinthians five, and that's part of our ministry. And Paul, Paul declares that we are agents or ministers of reconciliation because of the cross of Christ. Um, in times like this, it's helpful for me to remind myself of who Christ is. You know, and one of the places that I uh, go to. For strength is Revelation chapter 1 because it's a vision to John who is in prison on the Isle of Patmos probably under the Emperor Domitian for he says for the word of his testimony and so in the midst of turmoil and persecution he says uh, we're in Revelation 1 9 and we'll be there for a little bit Revelation 1 9 and we're uh, going down to 18. So I, I, what I like to do in the midst of turmoil is remind myself of a sovereign God who's lovely, beautiful, and powerful, and holy, and to remind myself of who he is and who he is as the resurrected and glorified Christ. And as I remind myself of that, peace foots my soul, and the instability and all the terrors of this world begin to diminish as the peace of Christ, the resurrected Christ, fills my soul. So part of what we're looking at today, we want to be set free to enjoy Jesus. And we want to live the life that abides in him. 
So we're going to look at, uh, spend some time in the book of Revelation, because that's where we have the greatest and clearest picture of this resurrected, powerful Jesus. So it would be a Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother, a companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours and Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. When you see that phrase, word of God and testimony of Jesus, that's going to pick up as a theme throughout the book of Revelation. And because of that theme, that they're standing on God's word and they're testifying of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, the believers in the book of Revelation are under persecution. So we're taking that as phrasing that that's why John, John never explicitly says, hey, I'm here, I'm in jail, or I've been exiled. But because of that phrasing, we believe that's what he's indicating, is that he's been set aside and he's being uh, persecuted by the Roman Empire as a leader of the church. In, in a way, he's functioning as a bishop. Those terms, that terminology, that episcopacy and everything is going to be a letter development. But in a sense, though, he's already walking in it, and he's overseeing seven churches. And these seven churches are going to receive this book, this book of Revelation, as a letter. And in this letter, it's going to be a prophetic word to encourage them in the midst of persecution. And these seven churches are all on one road. If you landed your ship at Ephesus and you went down this one road, you you handed the messenger, hey, this is the prophecy, the letter I want you to give to the churches. He would just run down the one road and stop at each of these seven churches, Smyrna. Uh, He started Ephesus. He'd been Smyrna and then end with Laodicea. And he's taking this prophetic letter by John, and he's taking it down to all the churches to encourage them. On the Lord's Day, verse 10, I was in the Spirit. So this is language to tell us that it's Sunday. Okay? I don't want to get into a rabbit hole here, but this is an indication that the church is beginning to worship on Sunday instead of the traditional Jewish Sabbath because it is the day of the Lord's resurrection, and the resurrection has changed everything. He was in the spirit. This is Old Testament language for being caught up in God, caught up in a prophetic word, caught up in a vision of seeing something that only the spirit can show. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So this trumpet voice would be a reminder of us of the second coming. And it would be a trumpet voice that would be used in the the, uh, old temple and tabernacle to call people to worship. And he says, write on the scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are these churches, seven churches that are on this one road. If you had a map, you could see them all lined up on this one road going into what's today Turkey, or we call it uh, then Asia Minor. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. This would be a traditional Jewish menorah. They would be all connected, and it's a sense, it's a place where the presence of God dwells in the light, where Jesus was standing when he declared himself to be the light of the world. And he's among these, uh, and among these lampstands, someone standing like a son of man. This is a phrasing back to Daniel 7. When you see the Son receiving glory from the Father as the Ancient of Days is sitting on the throne room, and Jesus is receiving, comes in a cloud of glory and receives all honor and glory from the Father. And in, uh, again, that's another rabbit hole, but Jesus preferred this name above all other names. He didn't prefer to be called Messiah when he walked the earth. He preferred to be called the Son of Man, partly because Messiah had a lot of... of um, Images and ideas attached to it that were no longer biblical. And Son of Man uh, reminded people of Daniel 7, that he was divinity. He was the Son of God. He was uh, 
fully enthroned with the heavenly father and he was the, he is the one who defeats the beasts that are mentioned by daniel and is a control and sovereign over all the empires of the world it's also has servant connotations from ezekiel where i'm here to serve as a son of man i'm not here to glory to uh, take glory in the sense of a worldly uh, earthly ruler so he's this vision he's seeing, uh, John is seeing, is having some um, connotations of Daniel 7. He's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. This is to give us an image that he's walking in the priesthood. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. So he is priest, dressed in priest clothes. So he's our intercessor. We need someone to represent God to us because we're so sinful and fallen. And then we need someone to represent us to God because we can't go into his presence because he's so holy. We need a mediator. And Paul tells us in Timothy that Jesus is our mediator. Okay. And so as, that's what a priest did as he mediated between God and the people. And so Jesus is our high, great high priest. And because of his finished work on the cross, we can at any time enter into the presence of God. Notice verse 14, his hair and head were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes are like blazing fire. Um, this is also a reference back to Daniel 7. The God the Father is pictured as white in all his wisdom and greatness. His hair is white. And Jesus has the same whiteness. It's John's way of saying to us through imagery and language that Jesus is fully divine. But also to indicate to us there is a purity and a holiness. His eyes are a blazing fire. This is eyes of judgment. Yes, Jesus does love us, but at the end times, there's going to be a, a time when all things are put to rights and that he's going to bring about a final judgment. And he's going to deal with all these injustices that we've seen. If the courts don't bring justice, God will. And some of the things we're experiencing today as a culture, if we don't see the perfect justice we want, we don't get angry. We look to the Lord because he knows that he will put all things to rights. He will make all things right. And we say, well, we want it now. We want it in this life. Well, if you look at eternity and you see the length of eternity and the beauty of eternity, you realize this is just a short blip on the screen. And you want and uh, to have justice for all eternity is a wonderful thing. And so his hair and head are light, white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes are blazing fire. His feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. There's a figure in Daniel who's pictured, a great tower, a figure, and he's picturing all the, the uh, empires, uh, Greece, Rome, uh, Syria, Babylon, but his feet are clay. In other words, the human empires fall. They crack and deteriorate in the end. But Jesus' feet are bronze glowing like a furnace. It means he's sure-footed. There's nothing that's going to topple him. His kingdom has no end. His voice is like the sound of rushing waters. This is, I don't know, maybe you've gone up to Nukalulu Falls or maybe even gone to Niagara Falls and you see the beauty of it and the tremendous power that's coming uh, from the pressure of the water as it goes over the edge. And John is alluding to this as God speaks, there's just power behind it. And it's a beautiful image of the awesomeness and presence of the Lord.
In his right hand are seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. This is an incredible image. It, it stretches your imagination that a sword is coming out of someone's mouth with the image as if that he divides the hearts. We know from Hebrews 4 that the word of God divides so from the marrow, and that he gets to the point of people's hearts and knows truly what is within them. His face shines like uh, the sun in all its brilliance. It's, again, an image of God's holiness, that he is set apart, sinless and perfect, glorious and wonderful. But what about this resurrected Jesus? What John's showing us is what Jesus looks like that he's right now that he's resurrected, ascended to the throne, and sits at the right hand of the Father. We see a Jesus that's in control. We see a Jesus that's gotten, that has victorious over death. We see a Jesus that we, uh, that's uh, awesome and that we almost don't dare approach except for this. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. Behold, I'm alive forever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, and then he placed his right hand on me. Can you imagine what that must have been like to see a resurrected holy Jesus reaching out and touching a broken John? He is a Christ of a tender touch. So if in the midst of this holiness, in the midst of all this awesomeness and power, in the midst of him being in control of history, Jesus gave a tender touch to John. Do not be afraid was his words. That's why we should never be afraid to approach Jesus in the midst of prayer, in the midst of the struggles in his life, especially in the midst of our failures. And we see his we see that he fell at his feet as though dead and that Jesus placed his right hand on John. He said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. The important phrase there was dead, not is dead, but was dead. He's a resurrected Christ. So as we look to Christ, who is our indwelling Savior, who lives in and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit, first of all, we see he's a Christ of Calvary who died in our place and suffered for our sin. Then we see he's a Christ of infinite holiness because his hair was white as wool. Then we see a Christ of a searching gaze because his eyes are like a blazing fire who knows every person's heart. And we see he's a Christ of supreme lordship because he holds the keys of death and Hades. Remember when Jesus gave the keys to Peter and to the apostles to preach the gospel in the open heaven to all those who receive when Jesus made the great confession that you were the Son of God, and there was this, and Jesus, and Jesus said to him, you are the rock. There's a discussion whether Peter's the rock or the confession's the rock, but Peter made the confession of who Christ was, the Son of God. He says, you hold the keys. keys. You turn the keys for those to get into heaven by preaching the gospel. Now Jesus has the keys for death and Hades to end all sin, to end all uh, darkness, to end all of Satan's rule. He can turn those keys. He can end this sinful 
world and restore it to new creation. So he's the Christ of Calvary who died for us. He's the Christ of infinite holiness. His, his hair is white as wool. He's a Christ of a searching gaze. His eyes are a blazing fire. He's a Christ of supreme lordship. He holds the keys. He uh, offers the gospel, opens the keys to turn the door for those to come into the kingdom of God. He'll uh, take the keys and lock the doors and destroy death and Hades in Revelation 20. And then he's the Christ of a tender touch. In the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our fears, he touches with our hands and brings restoration and wholeness. This is a redirected Jesus who wants to live in and through us by the power of Holy Spirit. There are people who have experienced this resurrected Jesus and they have found him transforming. They have found that all their needs are met in Jesus because, they're, that because they have Jesus, all their needs are met. There's a hero of mine. You may have, um, I don't know if you have heard of him or not. If you walk, go over to Sanford University, walk into the Hodges Chapel at Beeson Divinity School, you'll look up into a dome and see major figures from church history painted in the dome. In the dome, as you look up, you'll see a Japanese man in a suit in that dome next to Augustine and next to uh, 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 Perpetua and Felicitas, the woman and her servant who were killed by lions in Carthage. I believe it's the third century. You'll see Thomas Aquinas and all these heady theologians in that dome. But then you see this simple little man from Japan in a little straight suit in that dome. And his name is Toyohiko Kagawa. And Toyohiko Kagawa was the son of an aristocrat, a wealthy businessman who was an advisor to the emperor. He lived from 1880 to 1960. His father married a geisha. And you don't understand what that all implies in Japanese culture. To say she's a Japanese dancing girl is an understatement. Okay. Both his parents died when he was four years old. And he was raised by a stepmother and she abused him. He was unwanted and he loved. And he, as this writer says, he bore the scars of loneliness the rest of his life. He was in school in Tukushima, and he was introduced to two Presbyterian missionaries who shared with him the gospel and the example of Christ. Kagawa was, was so affected by that message that he memorized the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety. And he began to pray as a 15-year-old, Oh God, make me like Christ. He was baptized at 15, and, but this upset what remaining family he had, and his uncle disowned him and kicked him out of the house. To follow Christ will often pay a price, but to always follow Christ is to find the resurrected Jesus, the one who is always loving, who always has the tender touch, who is the lamb who was slain who from the foundations of the world, is to find the, the treasure that your heart has been longing for. You're willing to endure anything to hold on to him. I don't know how through all this, but at the age of 21, he graduated from seminary, Kobe Theological Seminary. All that he owned, he could put in a handcart. 
So basically, uh, you know, you go to the airport and you see people dragging their luggage behind them, you know, all these wheeled luggage things making all the squeaky noises. <laughs> That's basically what he had, a much more cruder built, but all his possessions were in that handcart. So he went and he lived in Chicago slum. It's considered one of the most decadent, immoral, dirty, filthy places on earth at the time. And he lived and he created a box to live in. Just like you've sometimes seen, maybe I, I went to Mexico and saw people living on a garbage dump. Hundreds of people taking tin, cardboard, other items, creating a shelter and actually living on a landfill. He lived in a six by six little cardboard box. Why? To be Christ. All these people are lost and lonely, been forgotten and rejected to minister to the living Christ to them. It says that he visited the sick, he comforted the sorrow, he fed the hungry, he lodged the homeless. He became an elder brother to the prostitutes, visiting them when they were ill, providing them with medicine. Parents turned to him to advise. Young people brought him their tangled life problems. Criminals made him their confessor, and children swarmed around him. The Holy Spirit was upon him, greatly using him in the midst of the slum area. But you realize that if we don't fix certain structural problems with our society, these problems, this slum is just going to continue on and on. So he founded Japan's first labor union to be able to protect the workers. And then he found a, a co-op for farmers, tenant farmers, so they could get better prices for their food so that they could get out of poverty. The government then judged him an agitator and put him in jail for 13 days, all because he was trying to help the poor. However, because of his writing and his editorializing and his little books, the government began to take action to be able to deal with the slum problem and the decadence and the poverty of these six, there were six major slums throughout Japan. A terrible earthquake came along and two-thirds of Tokyo was destroyed and 100,000 people died. And he was involved in helping rebuild that city. In 1928, he had a vision of a one million Japanese people turning to Christ. Quote, the central theme of his preaching was the cross of Christ, the revelation of the love of God. This is what transforms injustice, is the cross of Christ, reconciliation in Jesus. Before the Second World War, he could see that Japan was returning materialistic, and three times he was arrested for preaching peace. But after the war, because of the uh, suffering he endured and the message that he lived, he was asked by the emperor to come to his residence and explain to him the meaning of the cross for 30 minutes. He says, I'm grateful for Shinto and for Buddhism and Confucianism. I owe much to these faiths these face. The fact that I was born with a spirit of reverence, that I have insatiable cravings for values which transcend this earthly life, that I strive to walk in the way of the golden mean, I owe entirely to the influence of other ethnic faiths. Yet these three faiths utterly failed to minister to the deepest needs of my heart. 
I was a pilgrim journeying on a long, long road that had no turning. I was weary. I was footsore. I wandered through the dark and dismal world where tragedies are thick. Tears were my meat night and day. Buddhism taught compassion, but since the beginning of time, it was declared that Jesus said, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. The cross became his central theme in preaching. Everywhere he go, what he did, what he declared. He said, I'm only a sinner. Weeping over his sins can comprehend the marvel of the love of God in the cross. To me, to be born a child of sin, this redemptive love fills and thrills every fiber of my being. It stirs within me a poignant sense of deep thankfulness and gratitude to God. If you get a chance, pick up something from Toyohiko Kagawa and see a life changed by the resurrected and glorified Christ who looked at him in blazing eyes and spoke to him with a double-edged sword and saw his life transformed forever. So we see that Christ is the, the incoming Savior. He's ready to in, come into your life. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 3. In this prophecy of the book of Revelation, Jesus is going to send a prophetic word to a specific church called Laodicea. Laodicea is on the end of this long road that I told you about. Laodicea was furnished with two forces, sources of water. One was a spring from Colossae, which was cold water. Of course, it provides refreshment. Then it was a nearby town called Heropolis, and it had a hot spring, and it brought through an aqueduct. The hot spring was brought with the water down the hill to uh, Laodicea. And because of these two sources, good sources of water, it was a wealthy town. It became a banking or commercial center. So in other words, it was quite wealthy. And in Revelation 3, verse 14, these are the words of the Amen and the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So there's that. So these, this prophetic words coming from Jesus, he's a faithful witness. To be a witness is to be willing to take a stand and speak the word of the God, even if it costs you your life. But also this martyr, if you will, was, uh, which is what the word witness comes from in English. He's the ruler of God's creation. He's Lord and sovereign over all of life. He tells the Laodiceans, I know your deeds. I know you're neither hot nor cold. So the problem was when this water got down to Laodicea, the cold water had become warm and the hot water had become lukewarm. So it became good for nothing. You couldn't drink it because it wouldn't refresh. It wasn't warm enough to bathe in to bring healing and restoration to your body. So he tells them, you know, the hot and the cold, you're not healing as a church. Thinking about healing from the warm water and you're not bringing about refreshment because of the cold water. Your ministry as a church is achieving nothing. You're lukewarm. And I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. What a word to a church. You imagine receiving that prophetic word from the hand of the messenger who's sending you from John. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is speaking to different things in their culture within that city and showing them spiritually that they may be, they think they're rich and well-off, they're really wretched. They may think they're qualified, 
and highly thought of, but they're really pitiful. They are wealthy individually, but they're actually very poor. They actually, this, uh, they made a famous eye salve that helped bring healing to people's eyes in this culture. And he's actually saying, though, you may have healed eyes, but you're actually blind. And you may have all these fancy clothes, but spiritually you're naked. You don't have anything to offer. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire. Be willing to walk with me through the midst of persecution so that your faith, Peter tells us, that's refined as gold in the fire will be made strong. So you can become rich, white clothes to wear. You can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Don't think by your great wealth you've got it together. Come and spiritually look to me. In other words, look to me to fulfill your needs and not grow your identity from the world. Let me come and make your spiritual life real. Verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. So if I've turned my back on you and I've declared Ichabod, the presence of God is no longer with you, I haven't done that. I still love you. I may be rebuking you and disciplining you for the life that you've lived, the satisfaction you've taken in worldly things. But I, this correction comes out of love. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. The Lord deals with us in our lives out of his love for us, not because he's rejecting us. Verse 20, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This is Jesus standing, they're meeting as a church. And Jesus in his prophetic word is saying, I'm standing outside your door and want end to your lives. In other words, there's a church meeting and Jesus' presence isn't there because they're so caught up in worldly things. And he's saying, if you'll open the door to me, I'll come in with you and have sweet communion with you. And you'll be with me. And together we'll walk together, you and me, and I and you. Sweet communion together. He says that they'll do this. They'll make this choice and let Christ's presence enter their church and make choices based not on wealth, not on worldly things, I wonder what it means to live in Christ in a hostile world. He will say to them, verse 21, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sit down on the, with my father on his throne. Out of all the seven churches, this is the greatest reward that's offered. That this church, if they turn to Christ in the midst of the wilderness, they would find him as their all in all, and he would, they would reign with him. It's interesting, though, that he says he, if, as they knock on the door and he asks them to open the door, and the question that's plaguing, the go, that you're asking yourself, did they open it? Did they open the door to let him in? Look at the next phrase. Remember, chapter and verses are not inspired. They're helpful to help us find a text, but they often will break a train of thought. And go to the next things. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. There's a good possibility that John's receiving this revelation because the Laodiceans let him in, and the door opened. And we see this incredible vision of eternity. 
So we have this Jesus as our incoming Savior. Are we going to be like Toyo Hiko Gagawa and open the door and let him in? Even in the midst of our pain and suffering and rejection and loneliness, are we going to let him in? Are we going to let him in like the Laodiceans, even in the midst of our adequacy and great wealth? Are we going to let him in? We're going to let in the indwelling Savior, who is the Christ of Calvary, the Christ of infinite holiness, the Christ of searching gaze, the Christ of supreme lordship, the Christ of a tender touch. We're going to let him in. Don't have time right now, but when we, when we let him in, he becomes our infilling Savior. So we have our incoming Christ, our indwelling Savior. Now he becomes to infill us as Savior. Very quickly, he infills us with abundant life, John 10.10. He infills us with victorious life, Galatians 2.20. He infills us with a spirit-filled life, Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit. He infills us with a joyous life of fellowship. Remember, they supped with him. They opened the door. He says, I'll come in and eat with him and meet with me. We'll have this sweet fellowship, this joy together. And then he infills us with the life of love in Ephesians 3.18. The width and breadth and length and depth of Christ's love. And as he infills us, he empowers us for a life of service. Acts 1.8, power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us. When Christ has done this work, he then works within our hearts. He infills us, he indwells us. And then he's going to knock on each room in our heart. You ever gone to a bed and breakfast? You knock on the door and they show you the little sitting room. And they show you the eating area. And they take you straight to up the uh, steps and, you see, and they show you your room. You don't have the freedom to go in any other rooms. Just your room. Some of us treat Jesus like that. We just go, we let him into the door of our heart and we give him a room. A spiritual room. A little Christian corner. We would not let his influence pervade through the whole house. Are you letting Jesus into your den? into your relationships where you share and sit with your friends and family? Is Jesus sitting in your den watching TV with you? Would he watch the stuff that you watch? Is he sitting in your dining room? Would he drink the drink that you drink? Would he consume the food that you consume? Would you feel comfortable with him sitting there, knowing handle how you handle that. How about your study? Did you let him into the room of your study? What kind of books do you have? What do you look at on the internet? What kind of emails do you write? What kind of comments do you make on social media? Do you let him into the study? Do you let him into the dining room? Do you let him into the den? How about the garage? of the stuff that's all down there. Some of it's very expensive. Is that bought because Christ led you to buy it or you just wanted some status? Cars, 
all kinds of stuff is down there. And you let Jesus into the throne room of your heart. Do you know his plan? Will you reveal your play? Uh, let him into your plans, your decisions, your money. And will you allow him into the secret place? Place Everybody has a place in their house where they hide important documents, maybe gold pieces or deeds or titles to cars. Is Jesus in the secret place of your heart? Is this indwelling Christ? Are you letting him in as he knocks? Is he pervading the door of your heart? Today, as we want to be a people who allow the life of Christ to infill us, we have to allow every door to be opened in our lives. And as we open those doors, he comes in and fills us, transforms us and meets our deepest needs. And as he does that, he becomes the Christ of Calvary in us, the Christ of infinite holiness living through us, the Christ of a searching gaze operating and touching lives, the Christ of Lord, the Christ of a tender touch in and through us, the infilling Savior giving us his life. Jesus said in John 10, 10, that he came to give us life and life more abundantly. Do you want that life? You want his life to operate in and through you? Open the door. He's knocking on the door of various rooms of your heart. You let him in. You let him in. The life of Christ will pervade and operate in and through you and do powerful things. Transforming a culture. An orphan rejected by his family who lived in a six by six hut any being by the power of Christ, the man who changed the culture. We can do, the Lord can do the same work, type of work in and through us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for Kagawa's life, and we thank you today for the Christ who lived his life in and through him. We realize, Lord, we have many shortcomings. We have many struggles. And sometimes, Lord, we have things that we hide. And Lord, we open our doors of our hearts to you. Lord, as you stand outside knocking, Lord, we want to open that door and you come in with us and sup with us and us with you and have sweet communion. Oh, Jesus Christ, a resurrected and uh, overcoming Christ, please live your life in and through us, we pray. In your blessed son's name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Hope to see you next time.